Good morning. My name is Brandon. I serve as lead pastor here. We're so glad that you're with us uh, today. As we uh, begin our time of teaching and listening to God together, uh, I just want to invite you into a space of, of silence as we do every week. So let's just kind of put our stuff down for a moment. And uh, I know we are all kind of carrying, bringing things into this morning that need to be acknowledged and named and just kind of held before God. So let's just take a deep breath in and be reminded that God is present with us and a deep breath out, uh, that he longs to see us experience wholeness and the fullness of life that he came to give us in Jesus. And so let's just take a moment of silence. Let's let things settle. Lift up your heart to God. Lift up your anxiety, your fear, your worry, your concern. And then uh, just be reminded that God is with you here this morning. And then I'll come and lead us in prayer in just a moment. God, our Father, we thank you that you're here with us this morning, that you see us, that you know us, that you love us. As we come to reflect on and deepen our, our knowledge of your love, we acknowledge and name the fact that um, we all carry images of you that in different ways are broken and flawed and need to be healed. So, Father, I pray that you would do a deep work of healing in us today and in the days to come. We love you, and we surrender ourselves to your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our series this morning called Seeking God. Um, and I want to encourage if you, if it's been a few weeks, I know that different ones of you have been gone, uh, having children and going to weddings and doing all kinds of things that you do in the summer. Um, I want to encourage you to go back and listen. Um, this is kind of our pastoral priority for the year is, as a church, calling us back to an active, intentional seeking of God. And we said that God is always seeking us, and he invites us to seek him. And, and in order to get into that reality, we're looking this fall at some different narratives from the Old Testament of people who, to whom God revealed different aspects of his character. We said one of the reasons we don't seek God is because we don't see God maybe sometimes, and, and maybe not on a conscious level, but something internally within us, doesn't experience God to be a safe person, to be a trustworthy person, to be who he says he is. And so that kind of cuts the cord and cuts the nerve of our uh, active pursuit of him. And so what we're doing this fall is trying to, in some ways, rehabilitate our image of God and go deeper in understanding who God is. And then hopefully looking at these narratives, being able to see ourselves in these narratives, and then being able to see how these people with them were encouraged to seek God uh, as a way of corporately reflecting on and, and growing in that. And so today, we're going to look at, uh, last week we looked at goodness, which I, I, for me, I don't know, for many of you, touched a deep nerve of longing. And this, uh, today we're going to look at something that's really kind of foundational 
But yet, my experience is that many of us don't walk in the reality. Um, we're going to talk about how God is love. And we're going to do that through the story, a famous story maybe that you've heard part, bits and parts of. Um, if you grew up in church in like Sunday school, um, you probably have heard the edited version of this story. The, the real story is uh, graphic, uh, to say the least. And I'm going to do my best, knowing we have some kids in the room, to not uh, say all that Hosea says to us. But Hosea... It is a really fascinating story. It's, uh, Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel around the 8th century. He was kind of a contemporary to Amos and to, to some others, uh, some other prophets. And what's interesting is um, every prophet, all the prophetic books start with uh, the word of the Lord came to this person. And they're called to proclaim that word. Um, they're called to proclaim words of revelation, of judgment, and grace to people on behalf of God. But Hosea's call is different. If you go back to chapter one, um, it says that the word of the Lord came to Hosea uh, as he did to the others. But then in verse two, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. So the word of the Lord comes to him and he says, here's, here's my word to you. Go and marry a woman. Her name is Gomer. And she's going to basically cheat on you. She's going to become an adulteress. She's going to go after other men. And she's going to have children who are not your children. Go, go marry her. And so in doing that, it's kind of weird. Like, why, why does God do that? Why, why can't he just preach as the other ones do? I know if I were Jose, I'd be like, hey, I, I like the word of the Lord just coming to me. Let's, let's play that one. Uh, not so much like I got to go marry an unfaithful woman. But this uh, is really God's invitation for him to become a, a, what we call a living parable to have an embodied understanding of what it feels like to give your heart, to give your energy to uh, people who are going to reject it. You see, it's one thing to be able to kind of understand God's love on a cognitive level. Um, if you've ever had to teach somebody something that you yourself have not experienced, there's a difference between talking about God or talking about God's love and actually entering into God's love and being able to empathize with God's love in a way that then enables you in a much more powerful way. It's, uh, it's like you know, a person who you know, wants to teach you a Bible study. You ever been like in a Bible study? Maybe you're a little bit older and you're in a Bible study is being taught by somebody a little bit younger on something like suffering and they're like in their 20s and you're just like, oh, that's so cute that you like, think you know about suffering. Um, but have you, it, it's a different thing to be uh, walking through the death of a parent and actually experience and watch it up close. That's kind of what we have here in Hosea. God essentially saying to him, once you live this reality, you'll be able to really model it and proclaim it in a powerful way. I want you to enter into this reality of what it's like to, for me to love my people, the pain, the heartache, the betrayal, the forgiveness the redemption. And so Hosea obeys, and he goes and he marries this woman. Now, it, we don't know if she was already an adulteress. Most likely she was not, but she became one after they were married. They have three children, uh, at least one of whom, uh, just by the name, doesn't actually belong to Hosea. And so Gomer eventually runs out on him. She, uh, if you read chapters one and two, it's essentially that story where she runs out on him. She begins to live with other men uh, who actually abuse her and plunge her into poverty. And Hosea is constantly coming to her in chapters one and two to even provide financial provision in the midst of her turning her back on him and committing acts of adultery. And that brings us to chapter three. 
after this betrayal, again, the moment where we would be running away, where God comes to Hosea a second time. And he essentially says the same thing that he said in chapter one. Go, and he says, go again. Verse one, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. And, and they, they love raisin cakes. This isn't like their favorite food. It's not talking about like their preferences, like some kind of, you know, raisin cakes are essentially idol food, okay? Um, so that they love idolatry is what he's saying. So Hosea goes and he obeys. He goes to her lover's house. And instead of getting vengeance on her or abandoning her, telling her off and leaving, it says he buys her out of debt. She's gotten herself into some sort of debt situation or maybe even uh, is being pimped, is, being, is a slave, is a sex slave. And he goes and he essentially purchases her freedom and he covers her nakedness and he brings her home. And he says, I want us to establish a home. I don't want you sharing your body with other people. I don't, I don't want to share my body with other people. I want us to be one. I want us to be a family. The frustrating thing about this story, if you're like a movie person or a novel person, there's no ending. We don't actually know what happened. And I think there's a purposeful reason for that that we can talk about later. But I, the bigger thing I just want us to see in this, this story is that this is a story, again, that is a living parable about the story, really, of humanity, of God and us. Hosea, more than any other book in the library of Scripture, uses the language and the, and the imagery. He develops this language and imagery of a love story to evoke the intensity and the intimacy of God's painful pursuit of his people. Really, no other book up until this time, no other prophet speaks of the love of God to us as does Hosea. And this is, this is the drama of the human story. From the beginning, this is just kind of a recapitulation of the story of Genesis chapter one. God who exists eternally in a divine community of love creates human beings and he comes to them as love. He comes to them by love and for loving union with himself. That is the, that is the story of humanity. We were created not as the ancient Mesopotamians thought, out of the chaos of the gods or violence or war. This is what makes the story of Yahweh so unique is that it's a story of a loving God pursuing loving union with his people. And the story in Genesis 3 takes a turn when the first, our first parents, Adam and Eve, spurn his love and they begin to chase after other lovers. Now, Hosea tells us that God is then represented by this husband. He's pictured as a husband whose wife has been unfaithful. The father, later on in chapter 11, whose children have rejected him and are now essentially in self-destruction mode. The great irony of our condition as human beings is that while we spend so much of our time and energy resisting God's love and rebelling against God's efforts to love us. He's consistent. The word here in the Hebrew that just resounds through the book of Isaiah is this word hesed. Hesed. It's, it's this word for steadfast love, covenant love, the loving kindness of God. That's the phrasing there. God comes to us as love, and yet despite his efforts, we reject, we resist, we 
rebel. And then the great irony is we turn at God. This usually happens like in our late adolescent years or maybe in our 20s or maybe in a midlife crisis. This God who has spent all of his energy and time seeking us, trying to love us, and we turn to him and we blame him and we deconstruct him and we say, God, you don't love me. But that's an inverted view of reality, right? Hosea gives us God's side of the story, right? That's an inverted view of reality. It's not that God hasn't loved us, but rather that we have failed to love God. We have failed to, one, perceive the love of God as it's been coming to us since we were children. We, we failed to recognize that love, to open ourselves, to receive and to surrender to that love, and then to return that love to God. That's what it means to be fully human, is to be a person and becoming a person of love in the way that God defines love. To be fully mature as a human, you could say, is to become the essence of love. When the religious leaders asked Jesus, what does it mean to be a disciple in the kingdom? What does it mean to have eternal life? What does it mean to be fully human? Jesus answers with this famous command. He said to him, love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And this is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what it means to be fully human, flourishing. And we see in the book of Hosea that, that, that we see this failure of love. That's the story of Hosea. It's just a failure of love. They, they don't love God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They're committing what Hosea basically calls spiritual adultery. The old language, so just giving you like the old King James, is they're whoring after other gods. That's the language. I told you it's a very graphic book. They're committing idolatry or spiritual adultery against the God who loves them. They're not loving their neighbor as themselves. I mean, this is a book full of, I mean, it, it's, it's intended to be like a courtroom where God is just laying out a case and just, I mean, it's brutal to sit here and listen chapter after chapter from basically chapters three uh, on, chapter two really on, God laying out this case of how atrocious uh, Israel has become. I mean, violence, fraud, prostitution, uh, political corruption, deception, sexual infidelity against their neighbors. It's, it's bad. But you, we would be missing something if we just think this is about rules and laws and prohibitions. This sin that we see throughout the story of humanity and specifically embodied here in Gomer in the story of Hosea is about humanity's failure to love. Rich Velotis, in his new book, Good and Beautiful and Kind, his pastor in New York City, he says this, if love is the greatest good, sin must be the antithesis of it. Sin is not just a violation of a law, although it is. It is the disruption of love. Sin is the disruption of love. Sin is imaged for us as this power that distorts and disrupts the flow of love between us and God and between us and one another. Sin disrupts the flow of love because it undermines the safety and the trust 
and the connection that are necessary for love to flourish between people and God and between people and one another, and even between people and nature, creation. We see this pattern at work in Israel throughout the Old Testament that though they were dearly loved by God and God had gone to infinite, uh, you know, means to try to demonstrate over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you, his people continue to live as orphans. They cannot receive his love. They live as slaves. Even though they've gotten out of Egypt, Egypt is still deeply encoded in their bodies, in their minds, in their imagination. Hosea gives us an understanding, like, why is that? And, and maybe you're just like, I don't resonate with that. But for some of us, we, we deeply resonate with this fact that though God loves us, we don't feel that he loves us. We live as orphans instead of children who've been adopted into the family of God and given all the rights and privileges appertaining thereto. Why is that? Why do we live that way? Hosea provides us with a comprehensive understanding of why we fail to love God and why we fail to love one another. And, and, and the sin kind of is multifaceted. So I just want to give you a quick little glimpse throughout the book of Hosea of why it's so hard for us to receive and then to give love. The first thing that Hosea tells us, if you just read the story, is first that we have sin. Uh, there's three kind of categories. Sin done by us keeps us from experiencing love. Sin done to us, and then sin that is done around us. Sin done by us, first, he says, you have sinful hearts. The reason that we don't experience love, that it's hard for us to hang on to the love of God or receive the love of God in authentic ways uh, is that uh, is what Augustine, a long time ago, called this tendency that we have. He called it, human beings are essentially in curvitas in se. We are curved in on ourselves. The human condition is that we are preoccupied with ourselves. We love ourselves more than we love God, more than we love other people. And it leads to a sort of pride, a sort of arrogance, right? A, a self-preoccupation where it's all about me and my needs and what I want. And, and therefore, it's hard to have space for God to love me or for others to love me or for me to love God or me to love others. There's this hard-heartedness that lives in us. It just makes it hard to say soft to love. Hosea chapter 10 says this, so righteousness for yourselves, reap faithful love. Break up your unplowed ground. He pictures the heart as fallow, hard ground that needs to be broken up. It's time to seek the Lord until he comes. You have plowed wickedness and repeated injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. And here's the key, because you have trusted in your own way, Sin is essentially trusting in your own way. 12.8, Hosea also says, but Ephraim thinks, Ephraim being Israel, the people of God, how rich I've become. I made it all myself in all my earnings. No one can find any iniquity in, iniquity in me that I can be punished for. He says, I'm clean. I, I, I don't need anybody else. I've become rich and prosperous all by my own doing. 13.6, Hosea says, when they had pasture, they became satisfied, contented with themselves. They were satisfied, and their hearts became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. When we experience success, when we experience prosperity, Bernard of Clairvaux said, one of the rarest things to find in the world is a prosperous person who is humble. Because we will have this tendency to think that we 
did it on our own. We'll blame God for all of our problems and we'll take credit for all of our successes. That is the human story. And so there, there, there is sin done by us because of our hard-heartedness that we have to pay attention to that keeps us from being able to give and receive love. It's like having a clogged filter that needs to be replaced. The second thing, though, we see in the book of Hosea is it's not just sin done by us, it's sin done to us that makes it difficult for us to see and experience the love of God. In the story over and over and over again, especially right in the middle in chapters four and five and six, you see that God indicts not just the people for their hard-heartedness, but their leaders for abusing them and how that keeps them from experiencing the love of God. Abusive leaders who traumatize them They are supposed to be the ones, the priests and and the spiritual leaders in the community and the fathers. They are the ones who are supposed to protect the people of God. They are the ones who are supposed to represent God's love. That's what you do as a priest. That's what you do as a prophet. That's what you do as a father. At one point, he even goes to the the links of saying, I'm not even going to blame the women who are committing sexual immorality because it's their father's fault for failing to love them as they should have been loved. Hosea 4, let no one dispute, let no one argue, for my case is against you, priests. You will stumble by day. The prophet will also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from serving as my priests. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your sons. They, the priests, feed on the sin of my people. They have an appetite for their iniquity. They exploit them for their own selfish gain. The same judgment will happen to both people and priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Some of us know what it's like to experience trauma at the hands of those who are supposed to be showing us the love of God. They prey on our vulnerabilities. And it's one of the reasons why we project onto God what we've experienced from other human beings. It's, it's right here in the Bible. And then there's also something that we don't often take into account when we talk about kind of the loveless world in which we live and some of the problems and the fracturing. There's also this sin that's done around us that's bigger than what is happening between and inside of human beings. There's this curious little verse in Hosea chapter four, verse 12, as I was reading this, it just really caught my attention. And I do think we, we minimize this often to our own peril. Hosea says this, my people consult their wooden idols and their divining rods inform them. Here, here it is. For a spirit of promiscuity leads them astray. They act promiscuous, promiscuously in disobedience to their God. He talks about a spirit that, that hovers over and kind of runs through the community, a spirit of promiscuity that, that draws them away that is tempting them. Idols and spirits speak to the ancient reality of principalities and powers that runs through the biblical narrative. One of the reasons, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve didn't just sin on their own. The serpent comes to them, and what's the first thing that the serpent tries to do? He attacks their trust in God's love. Did God really say, isn't God holding out on you, right? And that has been the primary temptation and strategy of the evil one to use lies to distort our trust of God. God doesn't love you because you can't eat from this tree. 
And that same spirit runs through this story. We have to pay attention to that. If we're going to uproot lovelessness and hatred and bitterness and move beyond the fracturing of our moment, both as a church and as a society, we have to see the spiritual warfare that's a part of this. We have to understand that there are principalities and powers that don't want us, that are intent on blocking us from receiving God's love. And we have to, as Paul says, recognize that our battle is not just against flesh and blood. It's not just against our parents or our our spiritual leaders who have traumatized us or the church. It is against principalities and powers. And what all of these conspire to do the sin done by us, the sin done to us, and the sin that happens around us, kind of just the spiritual air that we breathe that is so toxic and so full of hatred and acrimony, because that is who Satan is, is it, it leads us to these faulty narratives about God. It leads us to internalize, oftentimes unconsciously, faulty narratives about who God is. Now, The easiest way I can explain this, and all of you have been children, if you have children, is just, if you want to understand this idea of faulty narratives, have kids. Like, if you want to understand how much you don't understand about love, become a parent. Even more than getting married, becoming a parent, like my greatest struggle as a parent is trying to convince my kids that what I am saying to them and what I'm modeling for them and what maybe even some prohibitions that I lay down for them is me trying to love them. It is just essentially this dance, and I can be a little bit more, they're not in the service, but uh, it's this dance of me saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. My kids go, you hate me, you hate me, you hate me. Why are you against me? That is the struggle of being a parent, right? Is I wanna parent them and I wanna love them in a way that they can actually feel loved. They actually see that I love them and trust my love for them and then live out of that love. The kids are constantly interpreting everything through the lens of how you're trying to constrain them, how you're trying to limit them, how you're trying to work against their thriving. You hate me, you abandon me, you don't love me. Why do you, why why do we do these weird things? I mean, and and it's, it's fine, right? Like you understand there's a developmental journey for a kid. Their brains and their prefrontal cortexes are not developed to their 25. So if you're a parent of a college student or your grandchild, just relax, okay? It will come online, hopefully, eventually. <laughs> hopefully. But kids, of course, lack a mature perspective. They lack self-awareness. They lack context to understand that what feels like you oppressing them is actually you trying to set them free in all the ways that God invites them into a true freedom. We often do the same thing with God. God is doing nothing but showering us with love, and yet we shake our fists at him and we say, no, you don't love me. We approach God with the immaturity of a child. We have these narratives. I don't know what your narratives are, but we have them. And I would invite you to explore those narratives. In my one-on-one pastoral ministry with people, it's amazing to me how many people carry implicit narratives about God that they've never explored. Why does God feel distant? So some of the narratives that I've uncovered in my own heart and in talking to many of you, the, the most common is God is absent. He wasn't there when I experienced trauma. Where was God when that died? I don't feel God's nearness. He's like a detached parent. God is abusive, maybe for some of us. God is not just absent in the background. He's the one who has actually been bearing down on me. He's targeted me, as we read last week in the book of Lamentations. 
How about, God is disappointed with me. That's an area I hear a lot. Psychologist, Christian psychologist David Benner said whenever he starts to counsel people, one of the first questions he asks them is just a simple imaginative exercise. He says, imagine God thinking about you. So if you meet with me, I'm probably going to ask you this question. I think it's really, really helpful. Imagine God thinking about you. What do you think God feels towards you right now? And he said, the number one answer, the top two answers, God is disappointed with me. God is angry with me. When we internalize these narratives, that God is absent, God is disappointed, God is abusive, whatever the narrative is, we ultimately, it becomes a barrier to us seeking God, right? We, we fail to seek God. We don't want to seek God because we don't feel that he loves us and wants us. Or if we do seek him, we seek him in like religious ways, you know what I mean? Like externally, not from the heart, but religious ways, these superficial, sentimental ways that we, we go to church and we read the Bible and we pray the liturgies and we do the stuff, but inside, our core is left untouched, untransformed, still hardened towards God. And that leaves us vulnerable to other lovers, other suitors. Hosea 6.6, 6, words that were on Jesus' lips a lot, he says, for I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God says, I want your heart, not your fake, perfunctory, externalized religious offerings. Don't give me religious performance. Give me your soul. Give me your very being. That's what I long for. Now, how does, how does that happen? How do, we, how do we get into that? I, I would argue that one of the things that God is doing, like Hosea is kind of like a book of therapy, to be honest. Like God working through Hosea to come to people to do one simple thing, to heal their image of him. That's what he's doing in Hosea. Healing their image of who he is, what he's doing. I think that's why he uses this imagery of, of love. It's powerful, it gets into the imagination, right? It gets beyond just doctrinal statements and gives us like a real embodied person, Hosea, and then behind Hosea, this loving God and husband. If we're going to seek God, we've got to learn to replace those faulty narratives with true narratives about God. A.W. Tozer, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God, that our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being God is, is of immense importance to us. You will move towards your image of God. If God is disappointed with you, you will not move towards him. If he is angry at you, you will not move towards him. If he hates you and he's abusive, you will not move towards him in love. And so we've got to have our image of God healed. Regardless of what you think about God, regardless of what I think about God, because of our experience, right? We have experiences, and we learn to interpret God within the frame of our experiences, which are valid, but so incomplete. 
right? Like our mental models of God. This is what I'm hoping for with my kids. It's like 16, dad, you don't love me or whatever. 10, you don't love me. But oh, when you get to 25 or 30 or 40 or 50, you realize looking back how much they actually do love you. Your mental model needed to be discarded and a new one needed to be taken up. And that's the reality with God. Regardless of what we think about God because of our experience with sin, the reality is that when God thinks of you, how would I answer the question, how does God thinking of you right now The answer from Hosea is that when God thinks of you, his heart is filled with love. He loves you. He loves me. Hosea shows us a God, yes, who is angry at sin, right? Angry. You see that throughout the book. I hate sin because sin defaces. It degrades my children. It degrades my world. But nevertheless, God moves toward his people throughout the book over and over and over again. There is this movement Toward, not away, with his redemptive and loving presence. Go again, chapter 3, verse 1. Show love just as the Lord loves the Israelites. The love that Hosea is to show Gomer is the same love that God continues to show to us. He shows us the love of a husband. He shows us in chapter 11 the love of of a father. I mean, good night. This, this is so beautiful. I mean, this is, my, this is my aspiration as a father with my own children. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son out of slavery. It was I who taught Israel, Ephraim, to walk, taking them by the hand. But they never knew that I healed them. They don't remember me picking them up in their arms. I remember so many times when my kids were little, and they would just do the craziest stuff. I remember like one of my kids like threw up on me in my face. And I was just like, I love this kid. This is amazing. They don't remember any of that. When we're fighting about whatever rule we just laid down. I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. To them, I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. This is the love of God. It's covenantal love. It's familial love. It's a love that is more than the love of like a roommate or a friend, right? Like when somebody's going through a tough time as a friend, you offer a little support, you know, hey, call you, can I drop by? But then like you always have the option to not return the text message. You're like, oh, sorry, I was, you know, whatever. Like when somebody's going through a really hard time and just like, I've reached my capacity, no more. That's the love of a friend. But the love of a a husband and a father is one where we so completely identify them with their pain and suffering. We enter into it such that their happiness is our happiness, their pain is our pain. Their despair becomes our despair. That is the covenant love of God. God enters into a covenant with us and says, your pain is my pain, your despair is my despair. I'm going to heal you by identifying with you, and it is not until you experience my love and my joy will I experience love and joy. I mean, that is a radical kind of love. God's love is also compassionate. I mean, notice verse 8 there in chapter 11. How can I give you up? How can I surrender you? How can I treat you like a pagan nation? I have had a change of heart, God says. My compassion is stirred. This word for changed is one of the strongest words in the Bible. It's, it's a word that describes the overthrow of a city by an enemy. 
God here is describing his inner life to us. My insides, he says, are literally being upended. My internal life is being shattered. I have such compassion for you. It's a word that in the New Testament characterizes Jesus over and over again as he looks at people, he has compassion on them. Splagnitum, I love that. So from the guts, from the bowels. God is so compassionate in his love for us. I mean, do you comprehend that kind of love? Then thirdly, his love is costly. As Hosea bought her out of slavery, the, the price here was the price, uh, the barley was the price of a, basically what it cost to buy a slave in the ancient Near East, somebody who had sold themselves into slavery or had been taken against their will. Hosea buys her back at great financial cost to himself, at great cultural cost. You can imagine the ridicule and the humiliation he must have suffered from his friends and people who knew him, who were like, you're wasting your time going after her. Why would you do that? And then the emotional cost to himself. This is vulnerable love. This is the idea of redemption, right? Redemption in the Bible means to buy something back from slavery. This is the love of Jesus for us. Of course, like Hosea is pointing us forward to Jesus. He's showing us a God who became vulnerable, right? The word vulnerable comes from a Latin word meaning able to be wounded. God made himself able to be wounded. He enters in. Love is not just an idea. Love enters in, takes on flesh, becomes a human being, lives among us, lays down its life. Jesus, as the bridegroom, weeps over Jerusalem with this compassion and this love, and then he goes to the cross and he sacrifices himself. He becomes completely vulnerable to heal us, to bind up our broken hearts, to bring us back to God, to reconcile us to our loving husband and father. I love reading stories. Uh, this is like one of those things, it's like you can talk about it, but when you like watch a good movie or read a good book, when somebody has experienced, I don't know if you've ever had this experience of just the love of God really overwhelming you. Um, one, one of my favorite movies, uh, it's not a Christian movie, of course, but um, it, it's Good Will Hunting. And I know this will go right over, if you're like uh, young millennials, go right over your head, older millennials and Gen Xers, you'll be like, yep, that's my movie. Matt Damon, one of his best performances, he plays a young man who is brilliant, uh, ends up going to MIT, but, but grows up with so much abuse and trauma. He's so damaged by the ways that he was not loved as a child. He cannot, the whole movie is about he cannot receive love from other people. I mean, he's utterly incapable. And so he uses his mind and his wits to basically defend himself from having to be loved by other people. And it's a beautiful story. One of the best scenes here is when Robin Williams, who is his counselor, after he shares kind of his own story of abuse, he just enters in to this space and he basically just says, hey, what happened to you when your kid was not your fault? And they just had this beautiful moment where for the first time he opens himself up to the love of another person. And, and what you see through this movie is just a community of people gathered around. Will, hunting is his name just basically healing his image of love, showing him in very tangible ways what it looks like to experience love, the beauty of love. And it is, I mean, it will make you weep. Another um, story I just read recently, uh, next slide, is uh, about a guy named uh, Philip Yancey. If you have not read this book, it is tremendous. Um, it's called Where the Light Fell. And he was raised in the church, but in a very abusive environment. His mom was super abusive, super toxic, but all done in the name of Jesus. 
and it just completely damaged his view of God. His brother deconstructs his faith after high school and into college, still lives as an atheist, um, and, and, and Yancey himself deconstructs his faith. But it's this beautiful story of him after he leaves his house um, encountering the love of God. And he actually encounters the love of God and has his image of God. He talks a lot about the need to have your image of God healed because he did not see God as a God of love. He saw God as a controlling, abusive person like his mother. His father died when he was a child. And, um, and, and his healing actually comes, that where the light fell comes from a quote from Augustine, where Augustine says, I couldn't look the sunlight directly in the face. I had to turn my back to it, and where the light falls in the shadows is actually where I began to see God. And, and in this story, uh, Yancey sees it through romantic love of, of a girl. He experiences it through classical music and through nature. And it's through those things that his image of God begins to be healed because he says, wow, th- this kind of love, this kind of beauty must come from somewhere. It's not intrinsic in a world. If there is no God, this should not exist other than just random chance. And it's through those things that God begins to draw him back. And he has this powerful moment in prayer where he's overcome by the love of God and he is converted. And then it radically transforms his life. And a lot of his writing, if you've ever read anything by Yancey, it comes out of this profound healing of the image of God and the grace and the love that he wants to invite others to experience as well. So I want to encourage you, if you, if you, you know, want to just kind of see that, those are some great examples of what it looks like. I want to just close with uh, just two invitations here um, as we go to communion. Um, two invitations as we seek to... Um, experience that same kind of healing. And as we said, we see in each of these stories, we're going to look at how God reveals himself to people, an aspect of his character. Here we see the love of God. And then there's this invitation as people experience this particular aspect of God's character, in this case, his love, there is also an invitation then to seek God. Six times in the book of Hosea, God invites his people to seek him or to return to his love. Come home to my love. This is this common refrain, right? We, we hear this in the words of, of John, one of the beloved disciples of Jesus uh, in the New Testament. Love comes from God. Everyone who loves is begotten by God and knows God. Anyone who fails to love can never have known God because God is love. We're invited to not just talk about it, not just sing about it, not just discuss it as an idea, but actually enter into it as a transforming reality of our lives. Tozer has this really haunting quote in one of his books where he says, we have substituted theological ideas about God for an arresting encounter encounter with God. We are full of religious notions, but our great weakness is that for our hearts, there is no one there. And oh man, how many conversations I have week in and week out. It's like, yeah, I know the idea, but the reality is not here. It needs to make that movement 12 inches down from the head to the heart. That is the goal of our discipleship friends. It's to experience love, to experience God's love, to know in the core of our identity that we are loved by God. Yes, we are sinners, but we are dearly loved sinners. Being loved by God, knowing that in the core of our being is the foundation for a thriving life. It is the foundation for a life with God and a life with other people. It's the measure of spiritual maturity. And so we're just invited to seek that. We're invited to seek that. I love Hosea 10. I go back to this and we'll close here. Hosea 10. Hosea 10. So righteousness for yourselves. Reap faithful love. Break up your unplowed ground. It is time to seek the Lord until he comes and sends righteousness on you like rain. 
the first invitation is just surrender to God's love. Break up the soil, right? Like a field where a large portion of it has lain fallow. And, and, and we want to go back and we want to begin to break up that hard-heartedness, break up the fallowness. That, that's another way of talking about vulnerability, right? To, to break up the soil of our hearts is to open ourselves again to God's love, to exist in what David Benner calls an undefended state before the love of God, to break up the hardness of our heart, to experience and to pursue and to sow into our lives confession of our sin, repentance and turning away, to acknowledge all the ways that we've suffered and to seek to break that up and just say, God, I want to sit before you and I want to experience your love. A great exercise for you this week would be maybe just to sit with Ephesians 3 here on the screen. This has been so helpful to me as a person who really struggles to experience the intimacy of God's love, right? I, I am kind of by conditioning and by wiring uh, can be a very detached person, a very intellectual person, as you guys know, and you tell me often, you're very cerebral, I know that, and I am, I am it's, a, it's, it's part of my gifting, but it's also part of the thing that blocks me from experiencing the depths of God's love in here. And this prayer has been so helpful for me just to sit in this prayer, to contemplate this prayer, to just hear God saying these things over me. You are my beloved son, you are loved in Jesus. I pray that you would know this in your inner man. You'd be strengthened with power to know what is the width and the breadth and the height and the depth of God's love, a love that surpasses knowledge. It doesn't go around intellectual knowledge, but it's so much deeper. We need to surrender to God's love, receive his love, and then secondly, become love. Give his love. He says, break up the soil, sow righteousness. Right? One of the ways that we're going to experience healing is because we are wounded oftentimes in our relationships with other people, we are going to experience healing in our relationships. We must give that love that we are receiving to other people. It's how we are healed in relationship in a community that is a beloved community. We are remade in the image of God so that we can image God to other people, to give them love, to look people in the face, to put your hands on their shoulders to bless them in the name of Jesus and to say, God loves you. You are his beloved son and daughter in whom he is well pleased. I mean, I dare you this week to take somebody that you know, you know well enough to do this with by the shoulders or to lay a hand on them and look them in the face. It would be the most awkward thing that you do all week because we don't do this with each other. To look them in the face and to say, you are God's beloved son or daughter in whom he's well pleased. I mean, what kind of a community could we be if we lived that way with one another? What would be different? How would that heal some of our divisions if we could live that way? Human love makes divine love plausible. It makes it credible. It makes it desirable. Let's put our stuff down, and we're going to go to communion here together. We're going to sing a few more songs, and we're going to take communion in just a moment. But I just want to invite you into a space of reflection, into a space of just being reminded that God in Christ is with you and for you, that God is a loving husband, he is a loving father who has been pursuing you your whole life, and, and he wants you just to surrender to his love, to experience his love. So let's just, let's take a moment to just receive that, to let that kind of sit and settle in us. And let's just take some time to confess our sins as we come to communion. Let's, let's confess the ways that we resist that love. We reject that love. It's convenient to blame God for some of our own problems. 
right? It's convenient to project on God some of the things that we've experienced in our trauma that are not God's fault. And yet they become ways that we just keep our distance. So let's just, let's just bring our hearts before the Lord. Ask God to heal. Ask God to give us knowledge of his love. And let's cry out to him and trust. Say, God, I want you. I want more of you. I want more of your love. Father, we enter into this space now, into this time of communion, being reminded that you are with us and for us, that you've done everything that's needed for us to experience and to be transformed by your love. Would you continue to invite us deeper and deeper into that reality? Not something that's just cognitive, intellectual knowledge, but a deep knowing that surpasses knowledge, that cuts into the core of who we are, that opens us up in vulnerability and allows us to turn away from our sin and turn away from trusting or pursuing other lovers and draws us to you as the source of the very love that we long for and that we're seeking in those lovers. So God, would you do that work in us? We pray by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.